0: I'm Taryn Ward, and this is Breaking the Feed, Social Media Beyond the Headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the rise and fall of social media empires, to better understand the role social media plays in our everyday lives in society. Today we're looking specifically at AOL Instant Messenger. AOL is really its own story, no less interesting or important, but the story of AIM stands out because it was such an important early model of what social media could be. We'll start, as always, with a question. What can we take with us from AIM, and what can we learn from its meteoric rise and eventual downfall? Let's start with setting some bookends in terms of timeframes. AOL Instant Messenger, or AIM for short, was first released to the public in 1997 and closed at the end of 2017. When it was released in 1997, it was only available from a desktop computer, and really, that's how its use remained throughout. It's worth briefly describing how AIM worked with an overview of its features. There were no emojis back then, but you could choose your own username. We call them screen names, customize your profile and design or add designs to your bio. You could put up away messages saying that you were away from your computer or unavailable, or a favorite song or a favorite quote. It largely functioned based on a buddy list. So it was a screen that would sort of pop up on your computer with a list of people you were connected to, your friends, and whether they were online or offline. Um, you could also see their away messages if they were online but not at their computer or online and, and doing something else. Just backing up to how this all started, Barry Appleman, Eric Bosco, and Jerry Harris are usually listed as the primary engineers. Appelman had this idea back in 1994 to create a buddy list. And the idea here was that you could see when other AOL users were online. This is important. So back then, many accounts paid to be online by the hour. So this would allow you to see whether your friends were online and to connect with them quickly. He built this without telling anyone. And in an interview well after the fact, he explained that that was because there was really no oversight in terms of product management. So he just decided to do it. By the time Bosco and Harris joined in 1996, AOL had switched. So they weren't really using the hourly rate structure anymore. It was a flat fee. So to be part of AOL, America Online, you paid a flat fee to use their services. AIM, right from the beginning, was free. It was a free download, which explains why, according to Appleman, AOL wanted to kill it at various points, and and he felt for sure that they wanted to fire him. This tension was there really from the beginning and continued, I would argue, until, until the very end. It's worth talking a little bit about the significance of AIM. For those who, who didn't use it, and even for those who did, I think it's easy to overlook or to forget how important it really was. So because of some clever programming, it was very difficult for IT departments and administrators to block it. So people could use it on their work computers most of the time. And AIM became not just how teenagers communicated and how people communicated informally, but also how much of Wall Street communicated for for a pretty significant period of time, which was really incredible if you think about it. So there's this free service that people are just using sort of in all walks of life to to communicate about about all this. It's worth saying again that there were no cell phones so it wasn't competing with texting and texting wasn't an option. so it was either really pick up the phone and call someone, send an email or you have that instant ability to send a message. This was really the first time we saw widespread online chat or instant message or IIM lingo take off. so, GTG, Forgotta Go, and TTYL, Talk to You Later, and some other little gems really started. Not only did they come up for the first time in AIM, they really started to spread. I'll read a quote just briefly from a BU article, Boston University article, about the significance of this and, and how it really suited the times. Before this, only telephones and email existed. People could easily share issues and events happening with friends get assistance with schoolwork quickly, or even flourish friendships in the comfort of your own home. After 9-11, when people were hiding inside and children weren't allowed to go out, especially in the New York City metropolitan area, children could still communicate and have a connection to the outside world. They were able to talk to their friends and discuss what happened and why it was important. The 9-11 example is important here because it, it was also a significant part of Part of the times. And although that was a one off experience, many people during this time, many teenagers who used AIM, would experience something in real life and then go and share it on AIM with someone. Or in some cases, they would experience something really important on AIM and then discuss it over the phone. So there was still this back and forth. But I would say that at this point, it was really sort of a secondary thing, or it was a way of communicating and expressing and, and processing something that happened in real life more than it was a place for experiences to happen without, without outside context. Importantly, AOL was a paid service, so not everyone could access it. You know, so initially, only America Online AOL customers could chat with other AOL customers. So if you were a teenager and your parents didn't subscribe, but your friends' parents did, they could all talk to each other and you were sort of stuck on the outside, not part of those conversations. And it wasn't really a situation where you could, you know, email them and then they would email you back. It was sort of you were in or you were out. And AIM changed that. So anyone could download it on any computer. I think I downloaded it on all of our devices. Not that we had so many, but I mean my parents work computers, our computer at home, because it was a it was a quick thing and I could use their their computers wherever we were to access this. And it was so critical and so essential that I'd be able to do that. Remember this was really the only game in town too. There are no group texts or WhatsApp groups or snaps. It was either you pick up a phone that's attached to the wall Hope to reach every other individual person at their home, also probably connected to the wall, maybe even kicking someone off the internet in the process, or send an email, or you used AIM. And AIM was really sort of it. For me, it was it was I've I've said elsewhere that this is a huge huge part of my life and my my experience. I would say from the age of of thirteen until my early twenties, it was in AOL. Before that, it was really important. It was the primary way I would communicate with with friends, other than in person or or over the phone, um, and especially because I moved twice in that period. It was a way for me to to talk to people who otherwise would be a long distance phone call. So it was it was really important in that sense too. When I think about my experiences on AIM and what young people experience on social media now, there's there are a lot of differences. I'm not here to argue or even to suggest that it was without dangers or problems. It absolutely was. And these were dangers and problems our parents and guardians were largely oblivious to, and regulators certainly were, because it was a whole new world. It was developing sort of in real time, as as were we. But I would say that three key things made it made it different in in positive ways. So so first, it was only available on desktop computers, so we couldn't carry it around with us on our phones. Even if our parents had it on a laptop, we still had to be connected to the internet somewhere and sitting and typing in a keyboard. If we wanted to connect this way, we had to really commit. So we had to sit down. And I think it reduced the temptation and the opportunity to be on it constantly. And this is especially true in families where we all shared one computer or shared two computers. And there was really no opportunity for or little opportunity for privacy. Um, Some people would have their computer in sort of a side room, but for most people, this computer was sort of in their main living room or their kitchen and, you know, people would be walking by and and seeing what was happening. So it wasn't the sort of thing that you were just doing yourself on your device with, with no one else participating or able to participate in that. Second, most of the interactions were with people we knew in real life. So even where there were people we didn't know, there was no worry about bots. So it's not like mis and disinformation was being spread through these networks. We might get bad information from our friends, and certainly many of us did. But there was no plot behind it. It wasn't designed to make us, you know, see conspiracy theories where there were none or to confuse us about basic facts or information. So even though there was no identity verification, like with some of the communities on Discord now, you usually only connected with people you knew. And when you didn't, it became fairly obvious relatively quickly whether it was going to be a problematic interaction. Again, there were exceptions to this. There were stories of terrible things happening, and it was not without risks or dangers. But I think if we think about how things work now and the dangers young people are faced with and the very sophisticated campaigns that go on, it's it's not even in the same ballgame. Finally, AIM never figured out ads. Ultimately, this may be what killed it, but it meant for us at the time that their incentives were never misaligned. So in other words, they were never motivated to keep us angry and our because their bottom line didn't depend on how much content we created or how many lines we scrolled. It was really designed to be a pleasant, enjoyable, smooth experience. Again, I just want to say before I get into a lot of trouble, it was no utopia. And for teenagers, there was very little oversight and no concept that what we put out there could follow us around forever, partially because in most cases it didn't. It was sort of out there and then gone. There were exceptions to this, but I don't remember cases of schools being involved or or parents being overly involved or, or really that there was a need for that again not because it was without problems if i think about bad experiences that i had on aim there aren't there aren't very many but there's one girl in particular i can't even remember her name now but she was she was really mean and it came out in instant messenger she didn't even go to my school she went to another school but we had sort of friends who overlapped and she liked a boy i was dating and she started to say or or write all these horrible things to me directly, I could block her, which was was a great feature and an important feature, but also to others. So she would find who my friends were and message them things, copy and paste. So it was a function back then. And even in her away messages, she would put up, you know, sort of mean comments that were either thinly veiled or not veiled at all. Carissa, her name was Carissa. <laughs> wow, I haven't thought about her in a long time. Anyway, she said some awful, awful things, one thing in particular about a haircut that in fairness to her was a, a little bit mullet-like, but you know, I was a teenager, give me give me a break. It, it hurt. It was a, it it felt different than somebody saying it to my face because it was in writing and not in writing in private. It was in writing out there for everyone to see, particularly in the Away message, and it was embarrassing. But it didn't feel world ending in the way I think it probably would now, because even though AIM was a relatively huge part of my life, my identity was never tied up with an online persona or my online life in the same way. And there was so much overlap with my real life that it felt like it had a it had a, a resting place. It had it has some boundaries or it was bound to read. And just to be clear, this is not me patting myself on the back. I had some very unhealthy online habits, including staying up too late and a lot of this was was sheer dumb luck. But a lot of people I think felt this way and had this experience because that's just how it, it was designed. And and sometimes I think we tend to look at social media now and think, it, it had to be this way. This is just how social media works. But, but actually it, it didn't and it doesn't because it didn't. There is a different way to do this and, and there was a different way. So so again, teenagers are doing things they shouldn't. They always will. They always have. One, one of those special I am phrases P-O-S meant parent over shoulder. Um, this was developed on AIM sort of famously. And it was code really to let your friends know not to say anything too colorful. Now, again, how different this is to having friends over and sort of closing the door, I don't know. But it is, I would say, you know, if that's one step removed from from having it happen in person, I think it's certainly not the same as, as some of the things that happen on, on Snapchat now. Before moving on, just another note on away messages. These were really important opportunities in self-expression. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we look at some of the other earlier socials, like MySpace. But these were, in some cases, real works of art. So sometimes by the colors or the font, um, you could put up favorite quotes or song lyrics. And sometimes these quotes or song lyrics were meant to show a part of your personality or who you were, but a lot of times they were meant to express something that you were feeling at that time. And I think for teenagers, it was a really important, if strange, outlet. Alex Heimkin wrote in a Wired article about this, and you know he talked a bit about the platform's native conventions, but, but specifically talked about away messages and said, A particularly angsty song lyric, ideally a line or two from a dashboard confessional track, was a cry for help and comfort. I was never bold enough, to my recollection, to use a dashboard line that was sort of reserved for, it would have been a lot, but that comment definitely struck a chord. And I, you know, I can definitely remember hearing a song and thinking, oh, that's a great line. I'm going to use that. And in fact, I had a long list of away messages with different lines that I liked, that I could put up, you know, that were tied to different feelings or different sensations or just different things that I wanted to share with the world. And this was well before the time when most people had their own websites or pages, various places. So it was a place where we could really express ourselves in a different way. And because it wasn't tied to images, you know, this was long before the days of color-coded bookshelves, thankfully. It was really the sky was the limit. I mean, you could write something, you could use different colors to express something. And it wasn't it wasn't about perfection. It wasn't about representing something that was meant to be true, but wasn't. It was really just about sharing a feeling. And I think I think some of that is is lost now, which is which is too bad. But and they say all good things must come to an end. And in this case, aim was no exception different reasons have been floated for why this happened. One that comes up a lot was AIM's resistance to collaborate with outside developers or to make AIM open source, and that all this resulted in a failure of innovation. I'm sure those things didn't help. There were various rounds of layoffs that left AIM with a bare bones crew to keep servers running. There's a chicken and egg question here about whether there was a huge loss of users and then the layoffs happened or whether the layoffs caused the loss of users and whether it just became cyclical, but surely it it wouldn't have helped. Others have suggested that because things like text messaging and Gchat and Facebook really started to become options, AIM was never really competitive or designed to be competitive with, with something like this. You could argue also, that's because AIM never really figured out the shift to mobile. It was designed to be used on a desktop from the beginning, and making that shift wasn't something that that every platform did well. And you can imagine that at the time it would have been a huge investment and risk. And given the relationship and the tension between AOL and AIM, remember AIM was still free, it, it would have been a big ask and a, and a big commitment probably for AOL to approve that kind of spending. Fundamentally, AOL was a subscription business and AIM was a free service that cost them money. There were some attempts to monetize with ads or advertisements on AIM, but it never really caught on. And again, because AOL was anti-open source and that would have been a low-cost way to add features, there was there was this tension and there was this, this sort of, you know, how do we innovate and how do we add things if these are our boundaries and you won't spend any money on it. So I think a lot of people feel like it was really inevitable because of all these factors sort of sort of stacked against it. And even I have to admit that by the time AIM shut down in 2017, it probably was time. Their user base was virtually non-existent, and it just didn't make sense to keep going. There was an opportunity just before it shut down to download your old logs, and part of me really wishes I had, but part of me is relieved that that part of my life, which felt so private and protected and unique to me at the time... Can stay that way. And I, I find myself wishing that current and future generations could have the same comfort or at least that same option. Not that we want to erase our past or anything like that, but I think now there's a sense that there's no room to make mistakes. And because everything is in writing and everything can has the potential to follow us around forever, it really is just a lot of pressure. Back to our original question what can we learn from AIM in terms of the experience offered and its downfall? I think we can learn about the importance of having limitations. I think AIM brought with it and and had just as a part of its timing, some boundaries in terms of when we could use it and how often we were connected. And so it didn't interfere with, with our experience of Of life around us. Um, You know, we weren't walking down the stairs typing on our phones on AIM. We were just walking down the stairs and feeling the carpet, probably carpet, on our feet and, you know, maybe looking out the window even. And so I think, you know, thinking about our time and when we use these social networks thoughtlessly. And whether that's a good thing for us or not and how it affects our lives, and especially for young people who are still developing habits, whether there are things we can do to sort of say, okay, you know, there's a time and a place for this, but don't let it become your whole life. The second thing, the second point I mentioned in terms of how, how this experience is different was about interacting with people we already knew. So we we really believe at Bright that it's important to verify the identity of every single person on the network we're very pro privacy and we think privacy is really important at the same time keeping young people safe is too and there are so many bots now on various social networks and so many people don't even realize how it impacts their experience of which news articles get promoted and and how things are circulated you know aim didn't do that but it it didn't need to and so i think thinking about how that shift from a network that Didn't need that because it was people we already knew to networks now where they're completely open, how we navigate that shift and what our our options really are. Finally, I think ads and revenue models. I think when we talk about incentives, this becomes really important. If a network is free, if a social network is free now, it's not really. You essentially are the product they are selling you something, they're selling your data, they're not working for you. And even some of these networks that are hybrid now, LinkedIn and Twitter, some people pay, some people don't. Even if you pay, they're still sending you ads and they're still taking your data. That matters not just because of the fact that ads are annoying, and they are, or that you deserve privacy which you do but it means that their incentives are to keep you online as long as possible because that makes them money and whatever they have to do to do that it's it's part of what they need to do so that that got away from me a little bit but what I what I mean to say is find networks that are going to be on your side and that are going to treat you like a customer and a human being and if you can't and you're stuck using networks that, that are going to treat you that way, I think just being aware of that and having an awareness that that, that is what's happening and not sort of, you know, going through it and, and thinking that they're on your side or that they have your back or that they're looking after the people you care about. On that happy note, if you enjoyed hearing about the rise and fall of AOL Instant Messenger, look out for our upcoming episodes on MySpace, Gchat, and Clubhouse. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. Until next time, I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feet. Social media beyond the headlines.